Hello, and welcome to The Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today, we're very excited to be joined by guest Blair Enns. Blair is the founder and CEO of Win Without Pitching and the author of The Win Without Pitching Manifesto and the forthcoming Pricing Creativity, a guide to profit beyond the billable hour. Did I get that right, Blair? <laughs> you got it right, Jonathan. Thank you. <laughs> Stressful. <laughs> well, I am very excited. I know Rochelle's very excited to have you on the show. Uh, we have just a lot in common. I've been following your work for years. We've read a lot of the same authors, and we're super excited to talk about how you've taken this this big idea, which uh, to me started with the manifesto, perhaps it has roots before that, and turned it into a consulting business and then later a training business. And now, you know, uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, a best-selling author. Yeah. So could could we start off by just giving uh, giving folks a little bit of background about you know, who you are and what you do now, and then we can sort of delve into the history. Yeah, sure. And thank you to both of you for having me on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to this and happy to be here. So uh, yeah, my name is Blair Enns. The company is Win Without Pitching, and I founded it back in 2002, early 2002. At the time, it was a consulting practice, a new business development, or sales or new business development consulting to creative firms, typically independent creative firms. And I had come out of about a dozen years of working in advertising agencies and design firms and thought I would launch this consulting practice. So that was the first iteration of Win Without Pitching. And then over the years, um, about beginning in late 2012, and I'm sure we'll get into this, I decided to shift the uh, structure of the company from a solo consulting practice to a training company. So that's where we are now in um, Late 2017, early 2018, Win Without Pitching is about five years into its current incarnation as a training company. And for a few years, 2013, 14, um, it was both as I kind of played with training and had to make a decision about going one way or the other. So we've been a pure training company for about three years. If it, it really feels like this business is about three years old, but, it, but really it's more like um, 16 Wow. Okay. That's, and before that you were, uh, from the agency world, you were inside the agency world. Yes. Yeah. I worked for some of the world's largest advertising agencies and some of its smallest design firms always on the, I was a suit. I don't own a suit anymore. Although my, my latest social media profile pick has me in a suit. I had to borrow a tie from my 18 year old son for that photo and I own one jacket. So, <laughs> but I was a suit for many years and then I moved to this little mountain village in the middle of nowhere where, where we live now um, when I started the consulting practice. So there's this kind of shift of in the personal life as, that was the impetus for the business change. And um, I had a Hugo Boss bonfire when I moved out here, <laughs> got rid of all the suits. But I, uh, I was a suit uh, doing account services and new business at a very young age in the first ad agency I ever worked at. When I was 22, I was handed responsibility for new business. I wasn't great at it, but I did have some natural skills at it. So I, yeah, I came out of the account management and new business side of both advertising and design. Okay. So how do you go from there to writing the manifesto? Well, the manifesto I wrote, I think in... Early, late 2005, early 2006. So I had been running the consulting business for three or four years at that time. And the name, 
you know, I, I think the name is the name of the business was kind of a fluke. And I've been told by some of my closest professional friends that, yeah, th- that's win without pitching is a stupid name. You need to change the name. Um, on <laughs> some level, I, I think it is maybe not an appropriate, maybe not the appropriate. It's not, there's something about the name that can sound a little bit schlocky, maybe um, like some sort of false promise. But on the other hand, it's really been the kind of that name has driven me to uh, it's really a great label for how I've always thought about new business. And it's forced me to come at the subject matter from that perspective that is really true to me. And I think that's really been the difference, whether it's been a consulting practice or a training company or um, a book that I've written. It's always coming from that win without pitching perspective. Um, so the the name came first, the business came first. And then in... Um, I think it was, yeah, it was late 2005, I think, or early 2006, where I was writing a, a piece. I, 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 I've published an article, a blog post um, for, for years, for 16 years, either somewhere between weekly and monthly. And at the time, I think I was publishing closer to monthly. And I wanted something for the end of the year. So I tried on, I had this idea of like just wrapping up all of my philosophy into a few kind of short pithy statements. And I was also trying on tone of voice. So I want, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of manifestos. Mm. Um, and I kind of collect them and I've read most of the big ones. I think the biggest, most important book ever written and some religious people will be horrified at this. I think the most important book ever written might be the Curtis Creek manifesto. And I won't say anything more about that. People can go look at it and think, huh, what are you talking about? Order it, give it to every 12-year-old you know, and you'll change the world. So I was trying on, I was writing a blog post and I was trying on a new voice. I was trying on a manifesto voice. And at the time, and even for a few years after, it was the riskiest thing I had ever written just because the tone was so different. And I thought it was going to be taken as too over the top. Like it's almost biblical in its style. We shall, et cetera. It's 12 (laughs) proclamations. It's not chapters. I imagine Martin Luther nailing something like this to the church door. So I was quite nervous when I hit publish. And then the response was really um, gratifying and inspiring because people were telling me that they had, uh, some designers had actually typeset it and, and and put it on a poster and and uh, actually, you know, put it on their wall. And I kept getting feedback like that for a long time. So when I, um, when it came time to write a book, and if you're, if you want to be seen as the expert in your space, then you probably should write a book. And I was feeling the pressure to write a book, but I didn't have a format. I didn't have kind of a narrative structure. I didn't know. Yeah, otherwise, it would just been a book of lists. And then I thought, based on the success of that post, maybe I'm going to frame a book based on this. And I'm so glad I did. I'm, I'm, um, I'm really happy with this book. Seven and a half years later, I'm uh, I'm surprised to say that I'm still really happy with this book. Mm, that's great. I mean, to have a uh, a shelf life that's that long, and is I mean, there's no reason it couldn't continue to grow. I mean, nothing in it is really dated. It's completely it's evergreen. Yeah, I set out to write a timeless book, and I my intention for the book was I would create something that would outlive me. And so there's nothing in it, as both of you point out, it's kind of evergreen content. There's nothing in there that will be dated. There's nothing about the design. The design looks like it was like dug up from a lockbox and it could be from any time. In fact, I, um, 
the, one of the first things I did with this book, once I dis- decided on the fact that it would be a manifesto, is I had to decide what size would it be. So I took a bunch of different books that I owned, and I, I, I just had a sense of how the size of the book. So I took something that was the right thickness, but it was too large a format, and I cut it down. And I said, I want the book to be this size. And this isn't the way books... So I wrote to the size. I, I, uh, I, because I wanted a designer, somebody who doesn't maybe doesn't do a lot of in-depth reading. I wanted them to be able to read it on a typical plane ride, like on a two-hour plane ride. I wanted it to fit into a purse, into a laptop bag, on, the, on a toilet tank. Um, <laughs> and then, so once I got the physical... I had the structure, this this 12 Proclamations Manifesto structure, and then I had the size, and then I hired a designer who, when he's not doing his day job, he designs typefaces for Bibles. Nice. Yeah, I thought, well, for a creative audience, it either has to be really well designed or it has to just be all about the words, and I wanted it to be all about the words, and I wanted it to be somebody who was fanatic fanatical about type. So I hired Brian Soy, his firm is called Aspire. And it's not book design isn't their day job, but they do other in fact they're just finishing up my next book, Price and Creativity. But he's a he's a nut about type. And I remember walk he came to a seminar I did in Miami Beach years ago. I remember walking down whatever the main drag is, is it Ocean Drive, I forget, in mm-hmm. Miami Beach. Yep. And him just like pointing out all the art deco fonts and thinking <laughs> in all of the hotels and buildings that we were going past. So the rest of us are in this conversation about something else and he's just going crazy over typefaces. Yeah. It's awesome down there for that. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that's, and it was a big success. I mean, it's, it's how I heard about you. Uh, in fact, I know who told me about you. I, nope. I take it back. So this is weird. And this is, I think perhaps the source of some of my confusion earlier, which is that I came across this as a blog post first. Ah. So some a friend of mine was, you know, Blairens, 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 and sent me a link to one of the, I don't remember which one it was, but it was one of the proclamations. And I was like, yes, yes, this is good. This guy knows what he's talking about. And uh, I didn't even realize for a long time that it, it was bound in any form. I was like, oh, this is just this free online thing, which I believe is still true. I believe people can still read it online. You can read the entire book for free at winwithoutpitching.com. Well, now I want the physical one. I I, I want to feel it. Put it on my toilet tank. (laughs) Where it belongs. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what's been the now? Okay. So you launched the book and every, you know, it's people are printing it out on their walls. I, I would count that as a big success. And I've seen a number of videos of you sort of giving presentations, which I imagine came, which I know came after that time because you reference the manifesto in the talks. So did you, was, was that, what was that period? Do you do that anymore? It sounds like you're in a remote area now, so you probably don't. Yeah, no, I do a lot of speaking. In fact, when my next book comes out on January 10th, I've set aside all of 2018 to just travel the world and speak in support of that book. Um, and I didn't I didn't have, now that I'm the CEO of a training company and I, I don't coach or train in our program anymore, I create curriculum. I, I work with my team. I take us into the future. I'm in charge of future value creation. I speak and I write. So when I was a consultant, I didn't, you know, I wrote the book and it got me lots of invitations to speak. I already did pretty good on the speaking front. 
um, but it got me a lot of invitations to speak. So I did a lot of lectures on the manifesto around the world, but I was still, you know, running a consulting business. And if I'm not consulting, then I'm not sending invoices. I'm not earning money. I can, I've been fortunate in that I've always been paid well to speak and, and what I get paid has increased over the years. I could probably earn a decent living just speaking if I wanted to, but the real money was in consulting. And now, now we're a training company and I'm not encumbered with the day-to-day training or operations of the business. I'm free to basically just go out and speak. So that's, uh, that's a big part of it. And anybody who writes a book, you're, that's the, what follows behind that are a lot of uh, speeches and nowadays a lot of podcast interviews like this. I imagine it was tough. Well, was it a tough decision to switch from consulting to training or was it, you know, it said, you said you had sort of a, a shift in where you were living and, and the bonfire and whatnot. Were you excited to do that or was it scary? Was it obvious? That was the scariest. I look, you know, the scariest things that you ever do at some point soon after you look back on them and think, well, that wasn't, why, why was I so afraid by that? But, you know, picking up our young family and moving to this little village in the middle of nowhere, not, or not really knowing how we were going to earn a living. Um, that's how Win Without Pitching came to be. It was a, it was a necessity. I knew I wanted to kind of get out of the rat race of the city and the advertising profession at the time. But I kind of recovered before I left. I was in a I was in a horrible job with um with a difficult boss. I'll say politely, and I was ruined for the for the advertising profession. And then. Um, I was fired from that job. I engineered my own dismissal. That's another long story. I thought it would, and I, I saw it all building towards a lawsuit. But as I was being relieved of my duties and handed my severance check, I thought, I'm not going to sue you. I'm never going to see you again. So <laughs> after <laughs> after that, I went to work for a really great boss in a, and I was asked to build a, a satellite office. It had existed, but all the clients had left. So build a satellite office for another creator firm. And that was a great experience that that allowed me to fall in love with the profession again. But I had already decided we were moving to this village in the middle of nowhere. So I told the guy I was working for that I, I would do it for a year. A year turned into 20 months. And then I said I had to go. So we moved to this little village in the in the middle of nowhere. And we had uh, a bunch of little kids. We have four children. I don't, we had, we had three at the time and the youngest was six months old. We had a fourth since, um, a couple of years after moving here. So we were raising a young family. And in the early days, when without pitching was, it was a lifestyle business, you know, in the summers, it's a, it's a beautiful little village. We live in on the shore of a 92 mile long lake home to the largest strain of rainbow trout in the world. It's very, it's ideal, idyllic. It's as you imagine it. Mm. For years, I shared an office with a grizzly bear biologist and a bat biologist. <laughs> um, so, so we really are in this beautiful little mountain village in the middle of nowhere. And it really was a lifestyle business in the early days. And then around 2012, my kids were at a certain age. They no longer really needed dad to be around a lot more. And I was working more and more as a consultant. And in uh, November of 2012, I found myself flat on my back with pneumonia in bed for two weeks. And it was the fourth time that year that I had gotten some sort of sickness, just run down somewhere. And I, on three continents, so four times on three continents in one year, I just kind of run myself down as I was trying to maximize this consulting model. And I, um, I had an epiphany while I was kind of uh, recovering. I realized that my business model was trying to kill me, um, so I'd better kill it first. <laughs> and that's when I decided to make the shift for, to uh, – I decided to, try to launch a training program 
So uh, very, I recovered and I put together a 13-week training program, sent it out to my market, immediately sold it out, then did another one, sold that out, did another one, sold that out. So that took me through to 2013. And then for 2014, I strung three programs together into an annual commitment, sold that out. And then I think by 2015, I decided that's I decided I, I couldn't do both. Now, I didn't come to the conclusion that a training business is better than a consulting business. Part of my journey was I discovered value-based pricing. And I realized that the way I was pricing my consulting engagements was and running my consulting engagements was contributing to kind of the stress on my health. I had productized my consulting services. So if you know you could do a two-day session with me, which would cost X, or it could be like one day plus a bunch of remote consulting work. So I'd packaged, I'd created three or four different packages and I'd put these prices on those packages. And everything I just described violates some of like my new rules of pricing. And I realized as I learned more about value-based pricing, I thought, okay, I either need to become a properly value-based pricing consultant. So I would, by that, I mean, I would look at every consulting engagement as a completely blank slate and dive deep into what it is that the client really wanted and then craft and how much value I could create and then craft a really unique engagement that was specific to the client and the value and their situation and the value they were trying to create so that every engagement would truly be different and would be priced differently. And if I wanted to earn the most money from those engagements, I felt like I needed to be able to say to my clients, you know what, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get on a plane, I'll see, you in a, in the, I'll see you the day after tomorrow. And because of where I live, it takes me a day to get anywhere. It sometimes takes me a day to get to an airport. I just couldn't do that. Uh, so I felt like if I couldn't properly value price my consulting engagements, then I really needed to go the other way and fully productize my business. So that's the decision I made. I made the decision to go to a more scalable productized service business where and you know and a productized consulting business is a training company. So that's where we are today and it was really driven by the fact that I had kind of maxed out the consulting model the way I was doing it and I was a little bit limited by where I lived and I felt strongly that I needed to go one way or the other and the easiest way to for me to go would be to go to a scaled up training company. Now, I was talking to somebody in Austin, Texas about this the other day, somebody who's a consultant, and he was kind of trying on the idea that, well, maybe the evolution of all consulting practices is training companies. And I said, man, if I lived in Austin, Texas, I would be a consultant. I would not own a training company. If I had ready access to lots of different creative firms where I could go in deep and help them more, I'm pretty sure... In the short term, in the first five to six years, for sure, I would make way more money and have bigger impact on a smaller number of clients. But I don't live in Austin, Texas. I live in Caslow, British Columbia, and it makes sense to build a training company. Right. And it sounds like, I don't know if this is just because of the compression of time, that we're compressing the timeline, but it sounds like there was a, fair, there was a fairly high degree of certainty there based on a, a series of decisions that you made, you know, particularly about moving, but it seems like you were pretty clear on what to do, even though there was some fear. Yeah, I think so. I was doing a live podcast with my podcast co-host. I do a podcast called Two Bobs, the number two Bobs, with my friend and colleague, David C. Baker. And we were doing it live in London two weeks ago. And in the Q&A afterwards, he made the 
he was, he, we were talking about how different we are from each other. He's very scientific in his approach. And he said to me, he said, you're not afraid of anything. And I thought, <laughs> well, that's not true. Um, but I get these ideas and I just will not be stopped. Um, and I, uh, I think I've learned to lean into the fear. And if you know anything as you do about my selling approach, if, if, like if, if there's anything uncomfortable in the sale, we teach, well, lean into it. Go into the dark places. Embrace the awkward silence. Say yes. the things that uh, the client won't say. The things that most people in that situation would not bring up, it's your job to bring it up. So I, I think I've learned that you know when you get these crazy ideas – um, lean into them. As an example, where I was a couple of years into um, a, a, both a tr offering a training program and I was still consulting and I was on a plane, I was flying to Dallas and I, for whatever reason, I decided, you know, this is my last, I need to pick one, one or the other. It's going to be, I knew it was going to be training, but, and I knew at some point I had to kind of no longer consult. So I decided on the plane, this is my last client. I walked into my client's office the next morning. And one of the first things I said is, I want you to know this is my last client. And then I went on the plane on the way home. I wrote a lengthy blog post called, um, I think it's called I'm Out. And I, I said to the world, and nobody reads my blog post, my my blog, because they want to know what I'm up to. They read it for the <laughs> guidance on. But every once in a while, I like, I, so I just published it for me. I, I wanted to make a proclamation to the world that, okay, I am, that's it. I'm out of the consulting business. I'm not doing this anymore. Because I knew if I didn't say it publicly, then I would probably start doing consulting again. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the, the way I tend to operate. I come up with this idea and then I, I make this public dec declaration about what I'm going to do. And then I think, oh, crap. Well, I guess I have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So that you mentioned a couple of times, Price and Creativity, the new book. And uh, I, I have that thing highlighted to death. It's, um, and I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about the, the, the pricing details and the tools and the techniques that you talk about in there on my pricing podcast, Ditching Hourly. Yeah. What I'm curious about in this context is what... What was your whole thought process about why to do this book? Uh, how what, what your plans are for it? You know, is this is this for you a 150 200 page business card, or is this something you actually want to see on bestseller lists as like an income stream? What, what are you thinking about there? Yeah, that's a great question, and I've found myself into some in some really great conversations about this. The manifesto is the oversized business card. I refer to it as the yes, you can book. I want people to read it, put it down. And as, as an early reader said in a review or somewhere online, he said, I finished that book and I, it just makes me want to go wrestle a bear. <laughs> so I use that line a lot. I want you to go feel like you can go wrestle a bear after that book. There's not a lot of how-to in it. I mean, it's a manifesto. It's not meant to be a how-to. Um, and the pricing book is a 50, so the manifesto is just under 24,000 words. The pricing book is a 57,000 word manual. I wrote it as a manual. It's published as a three ring binder. I mean, there are different formats. You can get the ebook, you can get the ebook in the binder, you can get the ebook binder and four hours of video support. But I really wrote it to be a, like a desk reference where you would, you would, um, read it once through I hope it's enjoyable enough that you can read like most of it through. And then after that, when it comes time to put together your next proposal, price out your next proposal, I want people to reach out 
onto the shelf, pull it out, remind themselves of some of the rules and some of the tips, and then flip to the tools section at the back and use those tools to actually craft their proposal. So my vision is this book will be on the desk or shelf of every creative professional in the world who is charged with setting or negotiating price. That is my vision. And I could have I've, I could have published it through a few different mainstream publishers. I've had lots of the manifesto has gen- generated a lot of interest for me from mainstream publishers. Um, I could have published it that way, but it it occurred to me, you know, I own all. I'm looking at a bookshelf filled with about twenty five books on pricing, and then a, probably another twenty five on economics. Most of them behavioral economics. So I own all the all the books on pricing. And some of them have been so transformative. Ronald, Ron Baker has been such a positive influence on me on pricing and the impact he's had on the, on the professional world through his two books on pricing has been phenomenal. But I look at Ron's books and I think he should have made millions of dollars from these books. And I, I'm not, I don't know his, I'm, I know he's built a really lucrative career as a speaker and I don't know if he does consulting or not, but as an author and a speaker, he's built a really good career. So it's not like he's not well rewarded, but I kind of had a value conversation with the global creative community um, <clears throat> without them knowing it about <laughs> the impact and value of this book. And I did some quick math and I thought, I think I can sell between um, six and 10,000 copies of this book, which is a really big number given the audience and given what I'm charging for it. But I think over seven or eight years, I kind of see, because I think it'll be bought in bulk in multiple copies from larger firms. So I can see it being, I can see it affecting the bottom line of 2,000 firms. So I did the math. Okay, 2,000 firms, let's say an average size of a million dollars. That's $2 billion in revenue. I think, and I know from anecdotal experience that this is this is conservative. I think that the average firm that reads and implements this can add at least 5% to their bottom line. So if you're a million dollar firm, I fully expect that there's no reason why you can't add an extra $50,000 in profit. And I've talked to creative principals for, to whom I've, um, I've given pricing advice through our program and where we just touch on it tangentially in our training program. And they've, you know, the, the profit increase stories just from some of these pricing um, uh, principles are just, you know, tenfold increase in profit. We have heard that a lot, doubled profit, tripled profit. So I think adding, um, you know, 5% increase, that, that essentially represents a 50% increase in most firms. Anyway, so that adds up to like a $100 million per year in additional profit for 2000 smallish creative firms. So if, if, if this were, uh, if I were working as a consultant and these 2000 firms were just one business and I said to that business owner, listen, I'm pretty confident that I can add $100 million a year to your bottom line. What do you think fair compensation for me as a consultant would be? The answer would be in the millions of dollars, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, but there's something about the package that is a book that says, well, it doesn't matter if you add hundreds of millions of dollars to the bottom line. If you sell it the traditional way, books should cost between 20 and $40, then you're only going to make so much money. I thought, well, that's ridiculous. So this book is not sold. It's not available on Amazon. It's only available on our website, winwithoutpitching.com. Go to pricingcreativity.com and, and you'll be redirected. 
And um, it's the first pricing book in the world that is priced based on the principles in the book. <laughs> so when there are three different options, there's, I'm not going to give away too much here, but um, it starts at $320 a copy. And then there's a $199 version. There's a $100 version. Each of those is fully guaranteed. If you buy at any level and it doesn't work for you for whatever reason, send it back to us. We'll send your money back. No questions asked. So it's fully guaranteed. Um, and I, I want people who, after they buy the book, I want them to go back to the pricing page on our website. And I want them to see after they read the book, I want them to see how many of the pricing principles in the book that I've talked about that we actually used in the pricing of this book. <laughs> but my, I expect, you know, based on the math that I laid out to you, I expect to earn a million dollars from this book. And I think that's, uh, that's fair for me as an author. If I were a consultant, it would be, I would view it as an unfair price. Yeah, too low. So the million dollars, you see that coming directly from the book, not from doing speeches around the book, not from doing training around the book, totally from the book. Yeah. That is incredible. And I had an author say to me when I was in London, he said, he said yeah, well, it's not, you don't write a book for the money, right? <laughs> and I thought, well... Sometimes you do. I think sometimes you do. I agree. I've written five or six books now, depending on how you count it. And I've done through traditional publishers and self-published. And there's different, I think it's important to decide which way you're going to go before you write it. Like, what's this book for? Mm -hmm. Is this a business card? Am I, am I staking out a claim to a particular aspect of authority in the world? Or is this a uh, revenue move? And I think there's, there can be some overlap uh, there's certainly overlap in the results, but I think knowing which which one you're shooting for before you start the project is pretty important. I, I agree, and I think probably and too many business authors don't don't actually spend enough time thinking about what the goal of the book is, and therefore what the right way to to publish it is or to market it. This is like the purpose of this book is value creation to create value for others. That's the purpose of it, and it's really I I'm. I'm very happy with the Win Without Pitching Manifesto. I'm happy with the impact it's had on the global creative profession. And I can extrapolate into the future and, and, and imagine the impact that it will have over the long term. And I'm very proud of that. And the, I have the same expectations, but kind of on a different, in a different avenue, the same expectations for a pricing creativity book. I really expect this to be the standard in the global you know, creative firm community for many years. I don't, I don't think it's going to be timeless, as timeless as the manifesto, but I expect it to be the standard, to be on people's shelves and more than the manifesto, which gets people inspired and gets them believing that there is another way. This is really the, here's how to take those principles in the manifesto and turn them into, into real income, real profit for you and your firm. Um, so yeah, it's not a, it's not, I've, the oversized business card is out there. This is the thing meant to follow up on that to drive more value creation and obviously create value for me, the author. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was, I, I, I totally agree with that. I, I see the manifesto as a rallying cry and, and pricing creativity is more of a playbook or it's, it's funny that you, that you chose the physical format that you did because it does remind me of old time software manuals or cookbooks. Yeah. Or it, it really, and I think it also breaks the, what you pointed out earlier is this sort of preconceived notion of how much a book costs. And it's like, well, this one's a little different. 
you don't even have to believe the value proposition of the book necessarily. You just look at it and you're like, okay, this is different. This is not your regular business book. Yeah. If you, if you think of the training that we sell, so we sell a term of training for anywhere between $2,000 and $15,000, depending on how it's delivered. But the content is essentially the same. And when I started writing this book, I th- for the longest time, I thought there was going to be a training program version of it. So if you if you buy the ebook, the manual, which has an which has the added tools section in, and the advanced review copy that you've read, Jonathan doesn't have that tool section in it, um, but it, the manual has it. And then four hours of supporting video around it, you're essentially buying training. So right. it it looks like an expensive book, but it's actually cheap training. And so we've decided we're not, at least for the next year or so, we're not building training around the, around pricing. Our training continues to be around selling, selling the win without pitching away. We also have some stuff on positioning and lead generation, but we're really a sales training organization. So it, this is really deeply discounted training on pricing. I mean, if you, look, if you look at it that way, it's cheap. If you look at it as a book, and some people will look at it a book and be outraged at the price, it's expensive. But it's this wonderful integration of the idea of a book and an online course. I mean, a a lot of people are complaining about online courses now because you're not getting enough deep content. And I I like how you've put both of them together here. Yeah, thank you. And it's, uh, it's, you know, even our training program, we we go out of the way to say it's not an online course. This is coach-led training in classrooms. Our coaches have more than 10 years of experience of of selling the way, the win without pitching way, because they were clients of mine more than 10 years ago and have 10 years. So, and I'd have nothing against online courses. There's just a lot of them out Mm -hmm. there. And if you put something into the package of an online course, the price drops. It's like an online course is now, it's now encumbered by the same kind of limiting limitations of the package as a, a book is if you buy a book on, on Amazon. So we're trying to break that paradigm too. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I I could talk about pricing all day, of course. And I, I think yeah. we uh, you mentioned the twenty five pricing books on your bookshelf. I think I have the same twenty five because <laughs> it, in pricing creativity, the 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 first section I'm not sure. I think you had a different name for it, but the first sort of region of the book is you know for for people who are maybe considering buying it, it is like a crash course in the best books on pricing that are out there. And you sort of skim across the surface and pull out the things that are important to this specific kind of reader, which I think is critical because I can't think of any of the pricing books, even implementing value pricing. None of them really speak to a down to a tactical level to, to a particular kind of profession. I find when teaching people some of these I mean, let's, let's be honest. These are pretty abstract concepts, very, very intangible and tough to believe. They were like optical illusions almost. And when you, when people are new to these ideas, they need someone the first couple of times, at least they need someone to be like, no, 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 go like this. Yeah. And that go like this, whatever it is, is different from, from vertical to vertical or it can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is this is why I think for the right kind of reader, you know, someone running a, an ad agency, for example, or a creative or design agency, it's very, very actionable, which I think is going to, it's going to earn a place on the desk of, like you said, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this was on the desk of every creative, you know, owner across the world. Yeah. that it, it, Certainly we're not going to hit everyone, but that is my intent. And, um, 
and again, I'm I'm traveling in support of that. And I appreciate your 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 point of view on the book. It's because you've identified what I've really tried to do in that first section, which is called principles. I really am trying to bubble up like the best of pricing theory from most of the books. And um, a lot of the best pricing books are heavy in theory and a little a little bit difficult on the application. Mm-hmm. Um, Ron Baker's Implementing Value Pricing is I'm I lo- I'm such a fan of his. Not only the knowledge I've never met Ron, but we've corresponded. I love he just absorbs his capacity to absorb and synthesize information is is awesome, and he's also an excellent writer. I, I would read anything that he's written. But I, when I read Implementing Value Pricing, which is his second book after Pricing on Purpose, so Pricing on Purpose is the theory. Implementing Value Pricing basically builds on that, and and you can if you can just read his second book and skip the first one because he does kind of a recap of all the principles, and he gets into some great stuff, even some level of detail on implementation that I don't. But it is as I read those, a friend of mine said, and I talk about this in the book. He said, you should write a book on pricing. And I said, oh, man, there's some great books on pricing. The world doesn't need another one. He said, well, your clients aren't going to read those books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's right. The owners of the typical creative firms, especially people who see themselves as creative first and kind of pricers, salespeople, business people second, they're not going to read those books. So I needed to be – I needed to deliver the – principles in a in a interest very interesting way not go too deep into it and then get right to do this so the next section is rules six different rules six things you always do when you're when you're pricing and then the section after that is the lengthiest section it's the tips and that's meant to be specific situation specific guidance for specific situation crafting your high priced options crafting your low priced options making the margin in the middle dealing with retainers final negotiations with procurement etc cetera, etc cetera. so I imagine people will read the first two sections and then when it comes time to craft their proposal, they'll go to the back. The tools section has a quick review of the rules and then they'll flip to the section in the tools to get the specific nugget for the thing that they're building for that one client. So yeah, that's um, that's how I've tried to write the book. And I've also, I'm a, I come from the world of sales. So the reason I talk about this in the book, the reason value-based pricing fails in most creative firms, in fact, most professional firms, it it breaks down at the value conversation. And that's where the theory of pricing meets the actual reality of selling. So I, I, I know from my own experience, you cannot become an effective pricer if you do not at the same time work on your skills as a salesperson. So, and the third one would be negotiating. So selling, pricing, and negotiating, it's really hard to be good at pricing if you do not also tackle selling and negotiating. And that's kind of, that's part of the, that's one of the perspectives that I, that I tried to bring to the book. Yeah, it definitely, definitely comes through. So I, I just, I mean, we, we're going to like hug it out here. I think it's a great book. <laughs> I think people, people who are in this space, it's worth every, It's going to be worth every penny. It, we're, we're running a little long on time. So what I'd like to do is, is ask you what might be kind of a hard question which is, I know this is, this is really big on your radar right now, but I'm wondering, what do you see beyond this? And the reason I ask is because you have a, uh, an amazing post, I think it's called No Exit, or No Exit is in the title, about never retiring and how that changes your focus about the business and all of that. So I'm wondering, have you, 
have you had the sort of headspace to even think beyond this at all? Is it, does this still fit into that public declaration? Yeah. So the post is called a mission with no exit. And it's when I realized from a couple of different sources that the, and just seeing in my own clients that uh, what, what the pattern that I saw is when you get to a certain age, like 55 ish in some principles, maybe a little earlier, maybe a little bit later, but certainly by the time somebody's nearing 60, they quit making brave decisions in their business. And it's because they have one eye on the exit. And I realized this is there are few things that damage a business more than the principal starting to kind of slowly extricate herself from the business. And I just saw this pattern over and over again. And then this is an idea I first heard from Dan Sullivan and the founder of Strategic Coach, a co coaching organization I have been in for my own professional development and will be in again. I'm not currently in it right now. But early on in their program, they just disabuse you of this idea that you're ever going to retire. And the rallying cry is effectively die with your boots on. <laughs> so I bought into that early on. And uh, also the idea that you never sell, like you, you come from the software space and where in the design world, the design world is changing so fast these days because the, the worlds of design, business consulting and software engineering are all coming together. And we'll, like, we, we don't even have agree on what the names for this is right now, but it's a really exciting time. But one of the things that's going on is that design is taking a lot of its cues from tech these days. And in Silicon Valley, in the tech world, you see a lot of like spinning up and exiting businesses. And it's, um, yeah, I'm not going to try to make a moral judgment on that other than to say that it's like that, that does not appeal to me. But I think there, I see some owners of design businesses think that the proper thing to do is like build this business, spin it up and exit it. And a lot of salespeople like to uh, open a sales conversation with the principle of the business that they're trying to sell to with the question, what's your exit? I think it's such an insulting question, the implication that you should have an exit. Because I think if, if, if I could take away from our listeners, those who own businesses, if I could take away from you your right to retire and your right to sell your business, I guarantee you the implications are that you would start doing today all of the things that you've been putting off, including things in your personal life. You would, you would arrive at a work-life balance now. You would start taking vacations now. You would make the difficult decisions around positioning your firm, about the clients that you work with, about the people that you work with, about having a strong number two in place so that you can free yourself up to do the more meaningful things, both in the business and in the life. You would structure your day-to-day -day so that you're doing things that you love and you're energized by, rather than kind of wading through these undesirable things with this crazy idea that there's some sort of payoff for all your sacrifice. That all your sacrifice now will lead to a payoff in the future. That's a dangerous idea, and I would just love to disabuse everybody of that notion. So I talk about that in the post, A Mission with No Exit. I do this talk around it called the five constraints. That's the first constraint. I'd say if I could impose this on you, I would. So in terms of my business, I, I've got visibility into years of my business. And my plan is I have no plans to retire. I have no plans to sell. I plan to die with my boots on. I do recognize I'm 51. I do recognize that, you know, yeah, people want to, once you're 70, I don't know where the age is, where the line is, but at some point people, you know, they're the the way the advice that they're likely to take from you is different your role needs to change as you age i know that but um what's after i have lots is after this so much is after this i'm so excited about what's after 
launching and, and pushing pricing creativity out into the world, I, I could live three lives and I would never be finished with the things that I want to do in this business. Here, here. <laughs> yeah, amen. <laughs> well, that's that's a fabulous place to wrap up, I think. It, it, where can people, where's the best place for people to find out more about you online, Blair? Yeah, I'm at winwithoutpitching.com. If you go to pricingcreativity.com, that will take you to a page on the Win Without Pitching website. I'm Blair Ends on Twitter and also LinkedIn. Um, I'm not, I don't use other social media and I've, for years I've been saying, I'm not convinced I'm going to stay on Twitter much longer. Um, so, but I am on Twitter now and I'm on LinkedIn now and, uh, you can find me at winwithoutpitching.com where you can learn more about the books and the training program. And if you want to reach out, um, you can do that through the website. Awesome. Very good. Well, dear listener, that is our show for this week. We hope you join us again next week for the business of authority. Bye. Bye-bye.